Car New York, your station for news as it happens. I'll be back with another 15 minutes of news at 11 o'clock. And right now, here's Gene Shepard. a very technical thing there. You just take the uh, large knob and you stick it in there where the ratchet is and you press the green button and uh, watch the meter as it approaches up to number 12 in the red zone there. And when it gets into the red zone, you'll notice that the scope begins to... Uh, yes, you'll see that trapezoidal figure there. And then after that, of course, it all works. <laughs> Hello, gang. Uh, you know, I've, I'm just delighted to report that we've been getting thousands of positive uh, uh, positive reactions to our Jersey appreciation night last night and I'm, I'm appreciative of that I it's, it wasn't easy to do I don't know why it is that, that tonight I have a terrible taste for a Twitty burger uh, well you don't know anything about Twitty burgers you never had a Twitty burger George you ever hear Conway Twitty hey well he's got a Twitty burger you know, <laughs> and I have a terrible taste for a Twitty Burger. Of course, if you like Twitty Burgers, you have a terrible taste anyway. So uh, you got the march pretty good. Keep your knees high. And by the way, we'd like to salute uh, one of the first victims of this year who, uh, things haven't changed. They're not a damn thing. Fremont, California, a truck driver involved in a freeway accident went to a hospital to have a gash in his leg treated and then he returned to look after the truck. You know, he come back to take a look to see the big rig there, how it's doing. When Bob Murdoch of Gardena, California, arrived back at the site where his truck was banged up, he found a number of additional wrecks, <laughs> including four highway patrol cars, which were hit while uh, officers were trying to untangle the snarl. And there, poor old Bob, he stood back and he saw this gigantic hoopla that he had caused and while he was surveying the chaos, another truck piled into the wreckage and a load of canned pears buried Murdoch. Murdoch was taken to the hospital with multiple contusions and abrasions due to canned pears falling on his head. 
Well, I suppose there's worse things to get hit on top of the head than canned pears. Uh, but I suppose it's uh, also academic when that number two and a half can is bouncing off your noggin. But the idea of being buried under an avalanche of canned pears, somehow, uh, I don't know, it has, it has a certain uh, Kafkaesque poetic ring. Didn't you think, George? You didn't hear it. Well, I don't mind. Well, you don't care one way or the other, huh? Well, that's the trouble with you. You're not relevant, George. By God, you're not worrying about your fellow man. That's a bad thing. Hey, listen, speaking of our fellow man, uh, uh, we have we have a little duty that we like to perform every year since it is now deep into winter. And I, there ain't nobody. Listen, I stand second to nobody in his hatred for winter. I'll tell you this. I mean, uh, in spite of the fact that I like to cross cut, you, you, you too. Yeah, well, all right, we'll, we'll walk down that road together there. I just don't like that that scene. However, I must concede, uh, if you, you like things like cross-country skiing or downhill, I suppose it has its moments of fun, but uh, not very often. Let's face it, uh, winter's... Uh, and there ain't nobody ever written better about winter than uh, the late Robert W. Service. And uh, he wrote uh, some fantastic stuff about winter. And part of our great, vast, all-encompassing uh, public service programming here uh, brings you occasionally uh, ballads by Mr. Service. Now, for you who don't know anything about Robert Service, he he, uh, he was in the gold rush. And he went out there, you know, that up in Alaska. See, he's, he's up in Alaska back in the, in the gold rush of 98. And uh, he picked up a few nuggets here and there. But most of all, he walked around and dug the scene. He's still a legend, incidentally, up in the Yukon. Uh, when I was up there a couple of years ago, they, uh, they, boy, I mean, there are even old codgers up there who remember when service was actually there. Yeah, kind of fantastic that uh, he would be remembered like that. But they do. They, you know, there's uh, one thing, incidentally, I've noticed about really cold climates, like, uh, say, uh, northern Alaska, the Yukon, is that the guys up there tend to live like 150 years old. I mean, man, they really live a long time. And there are old guys up there. You know, 90, 95. One old guy, one time I was talking to uh, Albro Gregory, who's the uh, the editor of the Gnome Nugget. And he said they had a bad case there a couple of years ago in Gnome. He said there was this 92-year-old man that was arrested, apprehended is the way he put it, by the law for attempted rape. Now, uh, that's a pretty good record for a guy 92. Now, what was worse, they, see, they, they, they put the arm on him, so Albro said it was... It was uh, bad enough, you know, it caused a lot of talk in town. This guy, 92, attempted rape. And uh, since he didn't get away with it, you know, it didn't work out pretty good, uh, they, they let him go after, you know, warning him that if anything like that happened again, he's going to be in real trouble. Well, by God, a month and a half later, he was picked up again, this time for successful rape. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and Albro says, that, you know, he's absolutely unregenerate. Here he is, he's, he's 92 years old. And uh, he's out there still fighting the good fight and uh, thinking the bad thoughts and uh, having the uh, the healthful lusts. Well, see, that's what the North will do to you. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things happening in the North. In fact, for those of you who are... You, everybody's familiar with Service's work. A lot of people don't know what he wrote, though. And uh, probably his most famous poem I'm about to render to you at this moment. And uh, before we render this poem... Uh, what do you say we lay a commercial on you here? We don't want to mess up Robert's service. It's 
It's a misty night. Walking along Cedar Street, hand in hand, are Andy and Betsy. Know what Andy's doing besides being nervous about how he can kiss Betsy goodnight? <laughs> he's sneaking a lifesaver. And not even Betsy will know he snuck it until he kisses her. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Lemon, got another lifesaver? Girls are why boys should always carry plenty of lifesavers. Lifesavers, a part of Cause their great flavor has been around for years and years. And folks have found there's nothing quite like lifesavers, a part of lifesavers. Lifesavers is a registered trademark. Bring me on my salute music, please. All together now, gang, let's sing. This is the self-expression rag. Oh, <laughs> 
Now, uh, George, uh, would you please uh, give me a little mood music here? We're going to set something up here for you in this cold winter night. Oh, yeah, God, this is the stuff, man. Yeah. A bunch of the boys were hooping it up in the Malamute Saloon. And the kid that handles the music box was hitting a jag time tune. Playing real good. Well, back at the bar, back at the bar in a solo game, sat dangerous Dan McGrew. And watching his luck was his light of love. Oh, the lady that's known as Lou. And that man at the piano box, the old music box just kept a playing. All the while, Dangerous Dan is looking at them cards in his hand. When all of a sudden, out of the night, which was 50 below, and into the dim and the glare, there stumbled a miner, fresh from the creeks, dog dirty, and loaded for bear. Yeah. He looked like a man with a foot in the grave scarcely the strength of a louse. Yet he tilted a poke of dust on the bar and he called for drinks on the house. Well, there was none that could place the stranger's face, although we searched ourselves for a clue. But we drank his health. And the last to drink was dangerous Dan McGrew. This is WOR New York. You know... There's men that somehow just grip your eyes and hold them hard like a spell. And such was he. And he looked to me like a man who had lived in hell. Yeah, with a face, most hair, and the dreary stare of a dog whose day is done. As he watered the green stuff in his glass and the drops fell one by one, I got to figuring who he was and wondering what he'd do and I turned my head, and there, watching him, was the lady that's known as Lou. His eyes went rubbering around the room, and he seemed in a kind of daze, until at last that old piano fell in the way of his wandering gaze. The ragtime kid was having a drink, and there was no one else on the stool. So the stranger stumbles across the room and flops down there like a fool. In a buckskin shirt that was glazed with dirt, he sat, and I saw him sway. Then he clutched the keys with his talon hands. My God! But that man could play! We just sat and listened. Just listened. He sat there with the sweat and the dirt on his buckskin shirt. And his talon hands moved like fiends incarnate. My God, that man could play. Were you ever out in the great alone when the moon was awful clear and the icy mountains hemmed you in with a silence you could almost hear 
with only the howl of a timber wolf and you camped there in the cold, a half-dead thing in a stark dead world, clean mad for the muck called gold. While high overhead, green, yellow, and red, the northern lights swept in bars, well then, you've got a hunch what that music meant. Hunger, and night, and the stars. And hunger, not of the belly kind that's banished with bacon and beans, but the gnawing hunger of lonely men for a home and all that it means, for a fireside far from the cares that are, four walls and a roof above, but so crammed full of cozy joy and crowned with a woman's love. Yeah, a woman dearer than all the world, and true as heaven is true. God, how ghastly she looks through her rouge, the lady that's known as Lou. And all of a sudden, the music changed. So soft, you could scarce hear. But you felt that your life had been looted clean of all that it once held dear, that someone had stolen the woman you loved, and that her love was a devil's lie. That your guts were gone, and the best for you was to crawl away and die. It was the crowning cry of a heart's despair. And it thrilled you through and through. I guess I'll make it a spread. Misere, said Dangerous Dan McGrew. The music almost died away. And then all of a sudden it burst like a pent-up flood. It roared out through the room. And it seemed to say, Repay! Repay! And my eyes were blind with blood. Yeah! The thought came back of an ancient wrong, and it stung like a frozen lash, and the lust awoke to kill, to kill, and then the music stopped with a crash. And the stranger turned in his eyes. They burned in a most peculiar way. In a buckskin shirt that was glazed with dirt, he sat, and I saw him sway. Then his lips went in a kind of grin, and he spoke, and his voice was calm. Boys, says he, boys, you don't know me, and none of you care a damn. But I want to state, and my words are straight, and I'll bet my poke they're true, that one of you is a hound of hell, and that one is Dan McGrew. Then I ducked my head, and the lights went out. And two guns blazed in the dark. And a woman screamed. And the lights went up. And two men lay stiff and stark. Pitched on his head and pumped full of lead was dangerous Dan McGrew. While the man from the creeks lay clutched to the breast of the lady that's known as Lou. Well, these are the simple facts of the case. I guess I ought to know. They say that the stranger was crazed with hooch. <laughs> I'm not denying it so. But I'm not so wise as the lawyer guys. But strictly between us two, the woman that kissed him and pinched his poke was the lady that's known as Lou. Great folk ballads. <laughs> Dangerous Dan McGrew. 
the, the classical title of it is The Shooting of Dan McGrew. And that opening line is, is one of the great opening lines of, uh, I suppose you might say, popular poetry. A bunch of the boys were hooping it up at the Malamute Saloon. <laughs> Thank you, George. That's real nice. And uh, George, reset that. You know, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite service epics. You know, there's a curious, sardonic humor that runs through Robert's service. And one of my favorite epics is the Ballad of Blasphemous Bill. That'd be great to be named Blasphemous Bill. And uh, this is a <laughs> this is a very famous one. And, and yet, you know, it's famous only to people who read him because uh, there are others that are much more popular and people go, go around. Did you know that one of the things that made him very famous, and incidentally very rich, for those of you who are curious whatever happened to Robert Service, he, he was became uh, very, very wealthy. He was, in fact, uh, during the time of World War I and just before World War I, he was a, he was a tremendous figure uh, in the uh, literary uh, all over the world, actually. And uh, he became so wealthy primarily because his works were performed constantly in vaudeville. In other words, practically every actor that went out on the road to do readings always did the <laughs> did dangerous Dan McGrew. And they used to do it in costume. You know, it was a fantastic operation. They'd have backdrops, and the guys would have all kinds of scenery. And uh, there was one character who traveled around the country who did... Uh, uh, service stuff, dressed in uh, in Eskimo guard, uh, garb. He wore a he wore a parka with the big fur thing, you know. And he had dogs on the on the stage, and he had a sled and the whole bit. And and he even had uh, a, a wind machine that went with him. And uh, <laughs> backstage, these guys had cranked the the wind machine. <laughs> the wind would howl, and he had this artificial snow that would blow out of the out of the. Uh, Wings. See, the snow would come down, and here you are. You're watching this fantastic character up there, and he's whipping away at the dogs. And he had, he had the dogs mounted on a on an endless belt, so the dogs would run. They really would run, and it would look like this guy is is in the frozen north. It's a fantastic scene, and as he's doing this stuff, as the wind is howling, he would he would he would do his great dramatic. And this is one of the ones he did. Uh, as he's he's whipping away, he's got his sleigh, and you can see it all packed up, and the snow is is piling up around him, and the people are all sitting there really digging this. You know, it's a really theater, man. Uh, off in the distance, you know, the music. He had mood music and the whole bit. The wind is blowing. He would he would he would uh, shout out at the audience see, like he was a uh, he was a uh, well uh, a, a, a trapper or something. You thought maybe he was either a trapper or he was a he was a guy that was like a like uh, maybe just a freebooter in the north, he had a tough-looking guy. He had a beard, giant beard, and uh, snow was all over him. And with that, he would, in the middle of this wind, he would holler out. He says, "I took a contract to bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay." What a way to deliver it, you know? I took a contract to bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay. Whenever. Wherever or whatsoever the manner of death he die. <laughs> the wind blows, see. Whether he die in the light of day or under the peak-faced moon, 
in cabin or dance hall, camp or dive, mucklucks or patent shoon on velvet tundra or virgin peak by glacier, drift or draw. And the wind... Well, that, that was one way of doing it. You never, you, you know, and, and this was such a big theatrical experience. He, in other words, uh, Robert Service was really performed the way, say, uh, Samuel Beckett would be performed today. He, uh, he was a one-act theater, one-act drama. And in, in a way, he's, it's very valid because all of his poetry, almost all of it, is a guy telling you a story about something that happened to him. So it can be done really in a very theatrical way if it's if it's properly done. It has to be done seriously too to get the full effect out of it. You know, and camping it all up doesn't doesn't isn't what it's about. And there's a curious macabre quality to it. Almost it's almost like Beckett in in some ways. And uh, by the way, when he died, uh, Robert Service, one of his closest friends, he died on the uh, Riviera. He lived uh, in an elegant villa on the Riviera. And of all places, you know, here it's, it's always warm there and kind of semi-tropical. And in the next villa was Somerset Maugham. And he <laughs> a strange pair. Somerset Maugham, you know, very elegant, uh, a faith gentleman uh, with his uh, gentleman male traveling secretary always at his side. And the next door is Robert Service, who was, you know, totally different scene. He'd spend his life in the Yukon yelling and hollering at guys. And uh, this this one was performed in beautiful ways. You know, he says, uh, I'll, I'll, you want me to perform that one now about the uh, the blasphemous Bill Mackay? I won't perform it, though, the way they did it on the stage because he performed it as if he was shouting out at the audience. And, uh, he, and when the wind blowing past, he says, for example, uh, he, would, he would start out the opening line. He says, I took a contract! And he would pause. See, this thing took a half an hour to do the way he did it. I took a contract! To bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay. Of course, at that point, all the people leaned forward because, you know, it's a great opening line. I took a contract to bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay. That's a pretty macabre idea. Can you imagine getting a contract from somebody to bury a guy's body? The guy comes to you and says, look, I, I want you to bury me. Uh, <laughs> I want you to bury me. Let's make a contract. I'll pay you. Uh, wherever I die, whatever it happens to be, wherever I am, when when I die, I want you to come and bury me. That's that's the contract. Well, that's a pretty wild idea right there. And it's pure, uh, it, not really Beckett. It's more, uh, it's really more uh, possibly Ionesco, uh, possibly Genet. Uh, the idea of taking a contract to bury a guy when the guy's alive and you're not an undertaker or anything. <laughs> this is a, this is a pretty wild idea. And, and here's the, the terms of the contract. Listen carefully. He says, I took a contract to bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay. Whenever, wherever, or whatsoever the manner of death he die. Now, that means any time. If the guy lives 100 years, he's still going to have to uh, go through it. And here's more. Whether he die in the light of day or under the peak-faced moon, in cabin or dance hall, that's an interesting idea, dying at a dance hall. You know what's happening there, yeah. <laughs> in dance hall, camp or dive, mucklucks. Now, you know what mucklucks are. Mucklucks are the shoes they wear. That's the kind of shoes, those big, heavy uh, booty, uh, like big boots with the big fur-type things on them. 
Whether he die in camp or dive, mucklucks or patent shoon. Do you know what patent shoon is? Well, patent shoes. That patent leather, elegant dancing shoes. See, they, in other words, no matter what happens to this guy, if he goes on to become an elegant type or he lives in the dives, it's all going to be the same. Whether he dies on velvet tundra or virgin peak, by glacier, drift or draw, in muskeg hollow or canyon gloom, by avalanche, whether he dies by fang or claw, that's kind of great, <laughs> whether he dies by fang or claw. And he has some great lines in this. Whether he dies by battle, murder, or sudden death, by pestilence, hooch, or lead, I swore on the book. This, this is a great, great line here. Whether he, whether he dies by battle, murder, or sudden wealth. You know, you can die of sudden wealth. If your friends hear of it, friends in quote, <laughs> I swore on the book, and this is the way he would deliver that line. This famous uh, character who delivered it in uh, in the uh, on the stage, he would say, "I swore on the book that I would follow and look until I found my tombless dead." There's the, there's the premise. And then he goes on to say, for Bill was a dainty kind of cuss. Yeah, his mind was mighty sot on a dinky patch with flowers and grass in a civilized boneyard lot. And where he died, or how he died, it didn't matter a damn, so long as he had a grave with frills and a tombstone epigram. So I promised him, and I paid the price in good Chicheco coin, which, by the way, the same. <laughs> by the way, Chicheco is is a is a coin that's a, that's the the uh, that's the coin that is used up there. That's the real coin. See, a Chicheco is a guy that comes up there and becomes a a a, 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 a new Alaskan. In other words, he he's got real money. Uh, Chicheco coin. He says he he uh, he paid me. See. Uh, right away, he says, uh, let's see, where are we here? Yeah, here it is. So I promised him. He paid the price in good Chicheco coin, which the same I blowed in that very night down in the tenderloin. So that explains what kind of a guy this guy is. Uh, and I painted a three-foot slab of pine. Quote, here lies poor Bill Mackay. And I hung it up on my cabin wall, and I waited. For Bill to die. <laughs> well, years passed away. And at last, one day, came a squaw with a story strange of a long, deserted line of traps way back of the Bighorn Range. Now, I'm not a man of the quitting kind, but I never felt so blue as I sat there gazing at that, you know, wait, excuse me, he says, uh, oh yeah, of a long, deserted line of traps way back of the Bighorn Range of a little hut by the Great Divide and a white man, stiff and still, lying there by his lonesome self. And I figured it must be Bill. So I thought of the contract I'd made with him. And I took down from the shelf the swell black box with the silver plate that he picked out for himself. And I packed it full of grub and hooch and I slung it on the sleigh. Then I harnessed up my team of dogs and I was off at the dawn of day. And now he gets serious about winter. Remember, he is heading north 
because that's where this guy died, up by the Bighorn Range in a little cabin. And then he goes to tell you about this is one of the great descriptions of, of winter in the Arctic. You know what it's like in the Yukon Wild when it's 69 below? When the ice worms wriggle their purple heads through the crust of the pale blue snow? Do you know what ice worms are? Do you know they really do have worms that live in the ice? There are ice worms, and they only live in the far Arctic. They're quite rare, and uh, in case you're curious, look them up if you have a dictionary out there. Look up ice worm. There is a thing called an ice worm, and they do burrow their way through hard Arctic ice. But listen to this description. You know what it's like in the Yukon Wild when it's 69 below when the ice worms wriggle their purple heads through the crust of the pale blue snow and the pine trees crack like little guns in the silence of the wood and the icicles hang down like tusks under the parka hood when the stovepipe smoke breaks sudden off and the sky is weirdly lit and the careless feel of a bit of steel burns like a red-hot spit it's a good description. If you touch steel carelessly, it burns like like a red-hot spit. When the mercury is a frozen ball and the frost fiend stalks to kill. Well, it was just like that the day when I set out to look for Bill. It's a great description. The frost fiend stalks to kill. She. Oh the awful hush that seemed to crush me down on every hand as I blundered blind with a trail to find through that blank and bitter land. Half dazed, half crazed in the winter wild with its grim, heartbreaking woes and the ruthless strife for a grip on life that only the sourdough knows. That's a tough line to read, but to understand it, listen to it, the ruthless strife for a grip on life. In other words, it's a constant battle to remain alive that only the sourdough knows. North by the compass. North I pressed. River and peak and plain passed like a dream. I slept to lose. Do you hear that? It was a dream that he would only lose when he fell asleep. It was not real. It passed like a dream I swept to lose, and I waked to dream again. River and plain and mighty peak, and who could stand unawed as their summits... By the way, I might point out something for those of you who don't know anything about this country up there. There's an area in the Yukon uh, that is, even to this day, uh, one of the most uh, remorselessly... Uh, dangerous parts of the world. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to get to it. Tremendous mountain peaks, enormous crags. Uh, I've flown over it many times, and looking down on that area, it's, it's just a, it, it is, it's a total wilderness, and I mean really mean. Uh, great glaciers, fantastic mountain peaks, snow and ice, and thousands of little lakes, and there's absolutely no way <laughs> that, uh, you know, you just know if you ever drop down in there, it's the end of the ball game. Well, you know, this plane that they lost not too long ago with the with the congressman that they haven't found it yet. Well, that's a uh, that's mean country. And that's where he is, you see. 
Moving north, though, always north. And he says, river and plain and mighty peak. Who could stand unawed as their summits blazed? He could stand undazed at the foot of the throne of God. North, aye, north, through a land accursed, shunned by the scouring brutes. They don't even have animals up there. Shunned by the scouring brutes. And all I heard was my own harsh word and the whine of the Malamutes. Until, at last, I came to a cabin, squat, built on the side of a hill. And I burst in the door. And there, on the floor, frozen to death, lay Bill. What a sight. Ice. Listen to this description now. Ice. White ice. Like a winding sheet. You know what a winding sheet is? That's a, an expression used by undertakers. A winding sheet is a sheet that is wrapped around a body. It's a winding sheet. You know, to get some of this, uh, the meaning of some of this poetry, you have to know what the phrases mean. To really see the picture he's painting. Ice, white ice, like a winding sheet, sheathing each smoke-grimed wall. Ice on the stovepipe. Ice on the bed. Ice gleaming over all. Sparkling ice on the dead man's chest. Glittering ice in his hair. Ice on his fingers. Ice in his heart. Ice in his glassy stare. Hard as a log. And trussed like a frog with his arms and legs outspread. That means he's laying there with his arms straight. He's spread-eagled. <laughs> Hard as a log. I gazed at the coffin that I brought for him. And then I gazed at the gruesome dead. And at last I spoke. <laughs> yeah, Bill liked his joke, but still, God darn his eyes, a man ought to consider his mates in the way he goes and dies. Have you ever stood in the Arctic in an Arctic hut in the shadow of the pole with a little coffin, a little coffin, six by three, and a grief you can't control? Have you ever sat by a frozen corpse that looks at you with a grin? <laughs> and that seems to say, that corpse seems to say, you may try all day, but you'll never jam me in. He's got that three-foot-wide box. And here's this guy laying there with his arms spread out, his feet spread out. You ain't going to get him in that box. Well, I'm not a man of the quitting kind, but I never felt so blue as I sat there gazing at that stiff and studying what I'd do. Then I rose and I kicked off the husky dogs who were nosing roundabout. You hear that implication? Dogs are thinking of having a little meal there. <laughs> and I lit a roaring fire in the stove, and I started to thaw Bill out. Well, I thawed, and I thawed for 13 days, but it didn't seem no good. His arms and legs stuck out like pegs, as if they was made of wood. To the last, I said, it ain't no use. He's froze too hard to thaw. He's obstinate, and he won't lie straight. So, I guess I got to saw saw. So I sawed off poor Bill's arms and legs, 
and I laid him snug and straight in the little coffin he picked himself with the dinky silver plate. And I came nigh near to shedding the tears I nailed him safely down. Then I stowed him away in my Yukon sleigh, and I started back to town. So I buried him, as the contract was, in a narrow, grave, and deep. And there he's waiting the great clean-up, when the judgment's Louise heads sweep. And I suck my pipe, and I meditate in the light of the midnight sun. And sometimes I wonder if they was. I actually wonder if they was. The awful things I done. And as I sit, and the parson talks, expounding of the law, I often think of poor old Bill and how hard he was to saw. And with that, the sleigh moves off stage and the wind blows and the dogs bark. End of the drama. It's pretty wild, isn't it? <laughs> now that's, that's, a, that's, that's a nice touch. As, as the guy's sitting there and the, the parson is talking about about religion and all this, this guy sitting there with his pipe and he thinks to himself, my God, I wonder if I actually did all that stuff. And he keeps thinking how hard Bill was to saw. <laughs> what a view of mankind. Now that's that's Robert Service at his, you know, at his sardonic best. Uh, he, he, listen to this one. Did you ever hear... I, I'm not going to read because I don't have enough... Uh, I don't have enough uh, time to read uh, any of it except the except the very beginnings of some of these things. Did you ever hear of the Ballad of Pious Pete? That's a good one. The Ballad of Pious Pete, the man that got religion. And he starts it out with a quote, The North has got him. <laughs> Yukonism. <laughs> the North has got him. And, and he begins this poem, he says, I tried to refine that neighbor of mine. I tried to refine that neighbor of mine. Honest to God, I did. I grieved for his fate, and early and late I watched over him like a kid. I gave him excuse. I bore his abuse in every way that I could. I swore to prevail. I camped on his trail. I plotted and planned for his good. By day and by night I strove in men's sight to gather him into the fold. The speaker is a, is a religious zealot. <laughs> with precept and prayer, with hope and despair and hunger and hardship and cold, I followed him in the Gehenna's of sin. I sat where the sirens sit, in the shade of the pole, for the sake of his soul. I strove with the powers of the pit. I shattered him down to the scrofulous town. I dragged him from dissolute brawls, but I killed a galoot when he started to shoot electricity into my walls. <laughs> He's a cuckoo bird. <laughs> now, that's the first poem I've ever read or, or seen in a long time where the, the speaker is a madman, but he's a religious madman. I mean, he, he did everything he could to save this guy's soul. He says, but I killed the galoot when he started to shoot electricity into my walls. God knows what I did. He should seek to be rid of one who would save him from shame. God knows what I bore that night when he swore and bade me make tracks from his claim. I started to tell of the horrors of hell when sudden his eyes lit like coals. And chuck it, says he, chuck it. Don't persecute me with your cant and your saving of souls. 
Well, I swear I was as mild as I could be with a child. When he called me something I can't even repeat. And grabbing his gun with a leap and a run, he threatened my face with a butt. So what could I do? I leave it to you. With curses, he harried me forth. And then he was alone, and I was alone. And over us menaced the North. <laughs> hey, the ballad of Pious Pete. And so uh, I'd suggest you turn, uh, turn up your thermostats a little bit. Perhaps tonight the frost fiend stalks to kill, wherever you might be. By the way, if anybody's hearing this up in places like northern Vermont, northern Maine, that could damn well be true. The frost, frost fiend stalks to kill and the ice worms wriggle their purple heads to the dark-crusted snow. And the wind howls out of the north and it's 69 below. Please, George, if you will. <laughs> W.O.R. New York, you stay tuned for Lester Smith and the news. News in detail on the hour from the W.O.R. newsroom. Viet Cong attacks increase in South Vietnam. United States Command said that in the past 24 hours, there were 116 attacks. Among them, a rocket shelling of the Bien Hoa Air Base 14 miles northeast of Saigon. Ten rockets hit the base. No damage or casualties reported there. But four rockets landed outside the base and killed three civilians and wounded ten others. American aircraft went over North Vietnam for bombing strikes, but they did not go above the 20th parallel in their attacks on North Vietnamese military convoys just north of the demilitarized zone. The 93rd Congress opened shop today with a repeat of past battles on Capitol Hill over the money to pay for the Vietnam warfare. Democratic Congresswoman Bella Abzug of New York introduced a fund cutoff measure, and Congressman Ed Koch of New York and 36 other House members introduced still another bill that would prohibit any further bombing of North Vietnam. On the Senate side, many Democrats approved the Vietnam fund stoppage resolution. Most Republicans voted to support President Nixon's current Indochina policy. Back in the House, the way was cleared to elect a successor to Representative Hale Boggs as the majority leader. Boggs is still missing and presumed dead in an Alaska plane crash back in October. House Speaker Carl Albert urged the Congress to expand the Bill of Rights. Albert said, I do not believe that America is a finished product, a utopia, a good stopping place, an ideal that has already been perfected. I do not believe we are as good as we can be or as free as we can be or as equal as we can be, or as just as we can be. I believe that the Bill of Rights is more than just a static set of principles. I believe it is a promise, constantly renewed and expanded by each succeeding generation, 
to meet the changing needs of time. At the White House, President Nixon and Dr. Henry Kissinger held still another conference on the upcoming Paris peace talks. Dr. Kissinger and North Vietnam's Lee Duc Tho resumed their negotiations in Paris on Monday. Gravediggers are on their way to a possible strike against metropolitan area cemeteries. Tonight, members of the Service Employees Union Local 365 authorized a strike after the latest cemetery contract offer was rejected. There are 47 cemeteries involved, but a union walkout will not come for at least a month because each of those cemeteries will be asked if we'll accept the union's pay increase demands. Union President Sam Simaglia said the least the union would accept would be a $12 per week pay hike each year over a three-year contract. According to some...